Hello, and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. I'm Brandy, and I'm part of the Ridge team here in Morgantown. This week, we are in a two-part series called Immovable. Today, we're going to hear from Pastor Tim Herring as he teaches us about the foundation and authority of the Bible. We hope this talk will encourage and inspire you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Uh, It's good to be back with you after being on vacation the last uh, two Sundays, anyway. Our family went up to Upper Michigan. Our whole family was able to go again this year, which was very encouraging. And it's been a few years since we were able to go up there because of the pandemic. But it's good to be back. I love this time of year. It's a a busy time of year. It's exciting. A lot of you are feeling the lack of sleep because you're getting up earlier maybe with your kids or whatever. But it's still, I think, a fun time of year. Uh, Today we're going to begin a new series. It's only two weeks long called Immovable, Immovable. And it's based on some of the foundations of our faith, certain things that we believe. Foundations really matter. Uh, Before we built this building back in 2006, we actually were in a different building that we had built for about seven and a half years on the Point Marion Road. It's located three to four miles from here. And so we, we built this other building. Now before that, we met initially in, a, in a, our um, living room and then we met in the dorms for a little bit, freshman dorms, a lounge there. We met for 10 years in a daycare center. But finally, in 1998, we were able to build a place of our own on the Point Marion Road and it was very exciting. And as we were getting ready to do this, we were clearing the land. We were doing what's called a design-build concept where you kind of designed it as you went along. But we discovered as we were getting ready to build this that our idea, our concept for the building was too small. We had in our mind that we were going to be building a church facility that would have a sanctuary that would hold 300 people. That's what our, our idea was. And then we would have room for about 150 kids in classrooms and the office space. And, and so we were running down the track to do that. But the church all of a sudden began to grow kind of rapidly. And we realized that before we even moved into that other building, we were going to be outgrowing it. And so we decided, well, we really need to expand the size of this building. And so we decided to change the size of the auditorium or the sanctuary to 500 instead of 300, and then we expanded the children's area as well as the office area as well. But before we could do this, before we could move ahead with it, we had to go back to the architect and the engineers and ask whether or not the foundation for the new facility would work or not. Now, we had done what are called core samples up to this point. Anytime you build on a property, you want to know what's underneath. So they they core down and they look at what's underneath there to determine whether the land will actually support the weight of your structure. And everything had been fine so far, but as soon as we expanded the footprint of this building, we had to get a few more core samples. And one of those was very disappointing. It turned up that on one of the corners, we were dealing with a significant seam of coal underneath the property there. And we were told you cannot, you can't build this building with coal underneath, it would just collapse. And so the only solution they gave us, because we could not move the building any other place on the property, the only solution they gave us is you have to dig out all that coal and then pour tons, literally tons of cement down there. Make a huge footer on that corner of the building. Now, we didn't want to do that. It was going to cost, if I remember correctly, it was going to cost $50,000 
just to fix that one thing. But we had no choice. If we didn't take care of the foundation properly, the building would collapse. Foundations really matter. And this principle applies to a lot of different areas of life, not just in the construction business. In recent years, I think that there have been a lot of changes in the perspective that people have in our culture to the Bible being the word of God. Is it really reliable? Is it something that we we should be following? Should it be an authority in our lives or not? And more and more people are concluding no. And I think this is a change. I think historically, for 2,000 years, the church has basically just relied on the idea the Bible's the word of God, and if the Bible says that we do it, I remember a Sunday school song I used to sing growing up, you know, most of you know it. Jesus loves me, this I know. And then it would say, for the Bible tells me so. And that little phrase, for the Bible tells me so, is supposed to settle the matter. You know, if the Bible says it. When I first moved here to Morgantown and went on campus, and if I was sharing with someone about Christ, and I shared a verse, people say, oh, if that's what the Bible says, and they would listen, but things have changed. Our whole society, of course, I think, was founded on biblical principles, beliefs, our morals, our values, so many things in our society were based on what's taught in the pages of the Bible. If you doubt that, take the three-hour and 15-minute trip to Washington, D.C., or maybe from here it's only three hours. Look at the buildings, look at the monuments, and you see verses written in various places all over the place, and you realize that the Bible had such a strong Force in the forming of our country here, but it's changed now. You can't even put up the Ten Commandments. You can't post it out of outside of federal buildings and things like that. Now, I understand why. We're we're not a Christian country anymore, at least from my perspective. This is not a Christian nation, and so I get it. I, I understand why this is happening, but I am saddened by it for this reason, that in the absence of a biblical foundation, what happens is that people build their own foundations. People start doing what is right in their own eyes, not what's taught in the pages of the Bible, and that gets really ugly, and it gets messy. Some of you, if you've read your Bible, read the, uh, the Old Testament book of Judges, there's a phrase that appears in the book of Judges time and time again. You know, the phrase is this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They had gotten away from the foundation of the prophets and the scriptures, and now people were doing just what was right in their own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, it's the messiest book in the Bible. Horrible things happen. And I mean, it's like a PG-13 or R-rated book. And it's because of that, that phrase appears over and over again. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. I'm just saying that's what's happening in our culture here today. And so people are defining for themselves what God is like, what is right, what is wrong. They're defining for themselves. This feels good or whatever. More and more people are finding objections to the Bible. I hear people saying, well, the Bible's full of errors and and contradictions here, so we can't trust it, which is not a true statement, but people are saying that kind of thing there. People are saying that the authority of Scripture doesn't apply to us today because it was written like, you know, it was finished 2,000 years ago. It was finished 2,000 years ago. It was written to a different group of people that lived in a different time. And so how could it possibly apply to our day and age? That's what people are saying. And so they discount it. They say, well, it doesn't have authority in our lives. Now, I'm not bothered that people would wrestle with this question. 
You know, if you're saying, well, I don't know if the Bible's true, I don't know if it's the word of God, that's, those are good questions to wrestle with. I, I don't have a problem with anybody wrestling with those, those questions. In addition to that, I do have a problem with Christians who respond to those who wrestle with those questions by saying, just have faith. When Christians say, well, you just have faith. That's not, that's not good enough. Are there real answers to the question, why do we believe this book is the word of God? And the answer is yes. That's where I'm gonna spend most of my time here together, but I think there's a lot at stake here. Because it's from the, Bible, the pages of the Bible, we learn really what is good and what is bad. We learn what is right and what is wrong. We understand concepts like heaven and hell. We read about the judgment to come. And by the way, in three weeks, I'd like to start a new series on heaven. I think it'll be an interesting series for several weeks. I just want to talk about that place. And, and the Bible describes what our God is like. And more and more people are trying to define God in their own image, which is a pretty tiny God. If, if we're creating a God in our image that sees things the way we do, that is like we are, our God is entirely too small. In the Old Testament, we read, my ways are not your ways. And so, but people are forming their own opinions about God. And the problem with, with this is, in addition to everything I've already suggested, is that when we, when we set aside the, the scripture and we set aside the word of God, I believe that we are saying no to the God of the word. When we don't believe the word of God, we're saying no to the God of the word. Now I base that on what's taught in the Old Testament. I've been reading through the Old Testament and I, I keep coming across a situation that's resolved the same way every time. Here's the situation. A prophet or a leader or a priest or whatever is given, given a message by God to talk to the people, to share with the people. Thus says the Lord, communicate this to the people. And we read that the people don't receive the message and then this causes the priest or the prophet or the leader, whatever, to get frustrated. And so the person prays to God. Moses is an example of this. He prayed to God, God, they're not listening. And God's response to them was, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. But by, by not accepting my word, they're not accepting me. They're saying, I, we don't want you as our God. And I think that's kind of a big deal. The thing about it is that the Bible, the word of God is so life-giving. I wish people understood that, how amazing it is, the power of it. David talked about this in Psalm 19, seven through 11. Let me read it. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. That's kind of what we need, isn't it? The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Don't we need wisdom? The precepts of the Lord are right. And by the way, all these words, instruction, testimony, precepts, they're really talking about the same thing. They're just talking about God's word. But the precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable. They're altogether righteous. They're more desirable than gold, than abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There's great reward in keeping them. This is a guy that learned to love God's word. And he saw the impact it had on his own life, bringing joy and insight, wisdom, enlightenment. The author of Psalm 119 put it this way, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, it's a light for my path. It really shows me the way to go, and I'm convinced that is still the case. 
But why do we believe it's the word of God? I want to give you five reasons here this morning why I'm convinced that the Bible is indeed the word of God. The first one is this, fulfilled prophecies. Fulfilled prophecies. In Isaiah chapter 44, 6 and 7, there are a couple interesting verses where God is challenging the false gods or the the non-gods of the world. he's, He's really putting a challenge before them and the challenge is this. God is saying to them, all these other gods, prophesy something. Prophesy something. Because only God can prophesy with 100% accuracy. I mean, there are people that can guess at things. You know, people can kind of read the things and and come up with a a pretty good prediction, but to get it right all the time, 100% of the time, only God can do that. And so we read in Isaiah 44, 6 and 7, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of hosts says, I'm the first and I'm the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me. Since I've established an ancient people, let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Now, the words again, prophesy something. Because again, only God can prophesy. And the reason, by the way, God can prophesy is that he alone dwells outside of the constraints of both space and time which is something we have trouble relating to because we're locked into space, a particular place. We're locked into time, but God is not. And so to him, the past, present, and future is all the same. And so he's able to predict things. Well, the Bible is filled with hundreds of prophecies and, and almost 500 of them have already been fulfilled. It's remarkable. There are prophecies about Jesus's uniqueness. There are prophecies about where he was gonna be born about where he was gonna live his life, why he was gonna die, how he was gonna die. There are prophecies about the fact he was gonna rise again from the dead. And these prophecies were made hundreds of years before they happened. And they were made by multiple people that God revealed these things to. And they all said the same things. Let me give you some examples. Micah 5.2 talks about where Jesus was gonna be born. But it also indicates that he was gonna be the the son of God or God the son. People don't realize, but the deity of Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. And so we read in Micah chapter five, two, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you're small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Someone's gonna come in the future who's lived forever. In the past, who could that be? It's remarkable, though, that this was going to take place in the little town of Bethlehem and to predict it 700 years ahead of time. This is remarkable because of how tiny Bethlehem is. You know, I would expect that the Messiah would be born in a big city or an important city like Jerusalem. Bethlehem, at the time of Christ, scholars think had between two and 300 people. So to predict 700 years ahead of time, that the Messiah was gonna be born in that little dot of a town? You know what it would be like? It'd be like saying the most important person who will ever be born is gonna be born in 700 years, I'm telling you now, they'll be born in 700 years and they're gonna be born in Fort Ashby, West Virginia. You say, where's that? Yeah, that's my point. 
I, I pass through Fort Ashby when I go to my cabin. It has a population of 1,271 people. And so you drive through it as one light. I found that out this morning, by the way, when a family came up to me after the service and said, we're from Fort Ashby. <laughs> They've been driving over an hour every weekend. And they say, I said, I hope I didn't offend you. They said, no, but it does have just one light. It's an amazing prophecy. Jesus' death, as well as the fact that his clothing would be divided, was prophesied in Psalm 22, 16 through 18. This was over a thousand years ahead of time. For dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Completely fulfilled in Christ. What's noteworthy about the prophecy is that it says that he had holes in his hands and feet. They, they pierced my hands and my feet. You say, why, why is that significant? Well, we recognize that as a crucifixion. There were no crucifixions for another 500 years. You know, it wasn't until about 500 B.C. that the first crucifixion, recorded crucifixion took place. This was 1,000 B.C. When they read this, I don't know what they did with it. Well, why would they pierce hands and feet? What is that about? They wouldn't have known it was a crucifixion. It's an amazing prophecy. His resurrection, Psalm 1610. For you not, will not abandon me to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. You will not allow your faith in one to see decay. This has only been fulfilled in one person ever. There's only one person who ever died and was buried that didn't see decay. It was Jesus. This was all prophesied ahead of time. And this is remarkable. There's a theological website called nickcaddy.org and they write about a Peter W. Stoner who's the chairman or was the chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College, but also the chairman of the science division at Westmont College. He, he was a statistician. And he calculated how possible it would be for one person who even lived to the present day, how possible it would be for anybody to fulfill just eight of the clearest biblical prophecies. Here was his conclusion. We find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros. It's a trillion trillion. I don't even know what the number is. You get past 100 trillion, then I think it's a billion trillion, million trillion. It's that big a number. You're more likely to win the mega lottery or whatever it's called 10 times in a row than this to happen. And other mathematicians have said the exact same thing. This has been confirmed. It is impossible unless God is behind it. There's a second reason, though, why I believe the Bible is the word of God. It's internal consistency. The Bible is written by about 40 different authors. It was written over a period of about 1,600 years. These authors came from different social and economic backgrounds. They lived in different times, different millennia. They, they had different occupations. They came from different continents even, different countries. They lived different, during different time periods. The, the, the political situation in these different writers' times were all different. And yet when you read the writings, the 66 books of the Bible, it's one book. I'm, I'm just saying that that's, I think, from my perspective, that is impossible. They address subjects like what God is like. 
and what people are like and, and the need for a sacrificial system and the need for faith. That faith is the only way you get right with God. All of them said that. that or all the ones that address this subject. There is no disagreement among any of the writers. From the beginning to the end, there is no disagreement. I'm just saying that that's impossible. Some of you know I have a twin brother, and I've talked about this before, that uh, he and I have uh, lived similar lives. Uh, It started in the womb. He kicked me and left a birthmark, so I know he was there in there with me. We lived in the same household, went to the same church, went to the same schools, He even went to Bible college for one year. I I finished there, but he went to Bible college for one year. Both of us ended up with business degrees as well. My twin brother and I have never had an argument in our lives. That's fascinating to me. We've never argued about a single thing. But if we were to write a book together about some maybe controversial subjects, something like the things addressed in the Bible, if we were to write a book together, I don't think we'd find complete agreement I mean, I know that sometimes authors collaborate and whatever, and they come together with something, but I think we'd be wrestling through it or whatever else. And we're living in the same time, same household, same similar education, everything else. It's, it's, this, it's basically the same. And then you get a situation of 40 authors, 1,600 years, and the God of Genesis 1-1 is the God of Revelation. In every book in between, I'm telling you, I've been reading the Bible regularly for about... 45 years, that's what happens if your dad's a minister. I'm telling you that I I read, I'm never surprised what God does or what he teaches as I read the different books of the Bible. It's one consistent line. He's the same. And I'm just saying that couldn't happen. That couldn't happen except that it be divine. I love God. Now compare that with some other holy books of today and I don't mean to put down any other holy book. That's not my intention here today but just the fact of the matter, the Quran was penned by one person who said he had a visit from Gabriel. One person. The Book of Mormon, same thing. A guy named Joseph Smith. I found these gold tablets. Christian scientist movement, one lady's writing, Mary Eddie Baker. They're all basing their entire religion on the writing of one person. Even in the Bible, we read every fact has to be confirmed by at least two witnesses. But I, we've got 40 40 authors that are all saying the same things about Scripture. Now, we acknowledge that, you know, the Bible as we have today, we don't have any of the originals. And so sometimes people will point out, wait a minute, there's a little discrepancy here. Because we were using the English language, it's in different languages. There are tens of thousands of copies of the Bible, ancient copies of the Bible out there. We don't have the originals. I think that was intentional on God's part because, frankly, we'd worship them. If you could determine Moses wrote these five books right here, you'd you'd build a church around it, everyone would come and worship. In Corinth, there'd be a church to the writing of Paul in the church in Corinth. And so we don't have any of the originals. We have copies that all confirm each other with like a 99.99% accuracy, better than that hand sanitizer you use for germs. Our English translation, the one we have, we don't have the originals, but what we have, is that accurate? Now the reason, part of the reason I want to even talk about this is some of you are, are coming to the university here and you're gonna be facing professors who are gonna challenge your faith, they're gonna knock down Christians, they're gonna think Christians are foolish and stupid, and they're gonna knock down the Bible as the word of God. 
And I, I just think we need to be able to think about this. Uh, years ago, there was a professor at the university, West Virginia University, in the religion department. His first test to all of the college students was a test on the contradictions in the Bible. And so he gave all the students this handout. It was several pages thick, hundreds of so-called contradictions in the Bible. And then they were tested on it, their first test. That was the base of the first test. Well, a student gave it to me. And when I saw it and I read over these contradictions, I got mad. I, I got really mad about it, not because the, the teacher was attacking the Bible. That's not, that's not why I was mad. I don't, I don't expect everyone to love the Bible, and, and, and it's fine. Let's have a robust discussion about the thing. What made me mad was the dishonesty. I looked at one after the other. I said, that's not a contradiction. Here's the reason. That's not a contradiction. Here's the reason. Hundreds of them. There were, you know, a small handful that I thought, I might need to research that one. I mean, that, that's an interesting point. But it was the dishonesty of it. And I realized this person has no interest in educating people except to undermine their faith. And if people don't know their Bible, then they're going to read these contradictions and assume it's true. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuking. In other words, you can use it to rebuke someone, for correcting, for training in right living, righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The word inspired in this verse in the Greek language means God breathed. It's not the same word we think of when you think, well, like Shakespeare was inspired. His inspired writings, no. The, the Greek word is God breathed. All of it was breathed out of the very heart and mouth of God. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of scripture, uh, scripture comes from one's own interpretation. I think that means it doesn't, none of them originate with the person. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See, we view the Bible as like an incarnation, just like Jesus was an incarnation. The, Jesus was fully God and he was fully man, and there was no contradiction there. He never ceased to be man, he never ceased to be God. While he walked the earth, he chose not to exercise his divine attributes or whatever, but he, he never ceased to be God, fully God, fully man, no contradiction there. The Bible's exactly the same. God somehow managed to use these different authors, using their own words, their own personalities, to guarantee a result that would be actually his word. All scripture is inspired by God, not just the authors themselves. The scripture itself, the outcome, is inspired by God. But this internal consistency to me is an evidence it's true because I don't think it'd be possible apart from that. Third reason I'm convinced it's the word of God is that the greatest teacher who ever lived, Jesus believed it was. You can't really, you can't dismiss that one. Jesus' view of scripture is evidence that it's the word of God. If Jesus believed it, I th frankly, it's good enough for me. But Jesus quoted extensively from the Old Testament and when he handled the scripture, he always affirmed it as the word of God and he affirmed it as something we're accountable for. An example of this is Matthew 5, 17 through 19 where Jesus said, don't assume I came to destroy the law or the prophets, which is basically the Bible that they had. Don't assume I came to destroy that. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. 
For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, and this is a sobering thought, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You see, when Jesus had disagreements with religious leaders or whatever, he he always just pointed them to what the scripture says. What does the Bible say? Assuming it's the word of God, a good example of this is when he was addressing the Sadducees on the subject of the resurrection. Sadducees were a religious group that did not believe in a resurrection. And so they came to Jesus and challenged him and he had a great answer. He said, well, let me ask you a question here, you know, about, about Moses. Moses... When he met God, God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. He used the present tense. He did not say, I was. You know? And then Jesus made the point, well, God's a God of the living, not the dead. I mean, notice that Jesus looked at the exact word that was in the verse, where where God's exact words, I am the God of Abraham. And he he rested on that firmly and said, well, it's, it's in the present tense. It proves my point that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive. That's how God could still be their God. And he was acknowledging that. Now, during his ministry, nobody ever debated this question like people are today, even Christians. They didn't debate the question, is the Bible the word of God? The people in general, probably almost 100% of them just assumed it was. Religious leaders believed it was. Sadducees had a smaller Bible in their version. They just believed the first five books, but they regarded those as the word of God. But this wasn't even debated in Jesus' day because it was viewed as reliable And Jesus spoke of it authoritatively and he used it and he said, we're accountable to it. It's the word of God. The fourth reason I believe it's the word of God in addition to the prophetic nature, the internal consistency and Jesus' view of it is the supernatural quality or nature of the Bible. This Bible is unlike any other book that's out there. Now, this point is subjective in nature. I realize it. But I'm convinced that anybody who reads the Bible with a humble and teachable heart will see what I'm talking about here. You say, this is not like a a, a normal book. It's got God's fingerprints all over it. You know, I love to read. I appreciate good writing. This past week, just in preparation for this, I was curious, well, how many books have I read for my Kindle library? And I I counted 50. I said, wow, 50 books. And some of them are so inspiring and they, they motivated me. And by the way, some will ask you, what books are you reading? Frankly, half of them are just adventure things like uh, mystery in Egypt or something. I just like stories like that. Some are about writing or other things. Some are biblical ones. In either case, though, uh, you know, I'm moved by these books, but I never get the sense about any of them that they're, they're written by God. And then I sit down with the pages of the Bible and I, there's something different about this. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 4.12. He said, for the word of God is living. That's what's different about it. It's living, it's effective, and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions or the ideas and thoughts of the heart. 
He's able to do that. It's powerful. On the very day Jesus rose from the dead, a couple of the disciples of Jesus, not the 12, but some additional disciples, heard Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't believe it, so they took off for a trip to the town of Emmaus. I think it was about two hours away. Jesus joined them on this trip, but they didn't recognize him. They were kept from recognizing that's Jesus. And so they they travel for a couple of hours, and, and all along the way, Jesus is quoting scripture. He was proving that the Messiah had to come, had to die, how he would rise again from the dead, that his purpose of the death and resurrection was to give us eternal life. And for two hours, they talked like this. And then they arrived at Emmaus. And when they arrived, Jesus acted like he was going to keep going. And they said, why don't you stay with us? And so he said, okay. And they sat down to eat. And Jesus took some bread and he broke it. It's in the Gospel of Luke, the last chapter. He broke the bread, handed it to them, and suddenly their eyes were open. They realized it was Jesus, and then he disappeared. And they immediately, instead of spending the night in Emmaus, they <laughs> headed back to Jerusalem here. But there's an interesting verse in Luke 24, 32. We read, so they said to each other, these two disciples, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Weren't our hearts literally on fire as he was talking? That's the power of the word of God. You don't always get that feeling when you're reading the Bible. I don't always get it, but it's there most of the time where I just, I sit down and say, this is, this is the word of God. And it just has this supernatural quality about it. Last point of evidence, and there are many more I could have chosen, but the last one is changed lives. In addition to biblical prophecy, the internal consistency of it, the view Jesus had of scripture and its supernatural nature, no book, no book has changed more lives than this one. If people apply what's taught in the Bible, their lives are changed. Makes everybody's life better to do what's taught in the Bible. Everyone's life is improved by this. Over the years though, I've met thousands, not hundreds, thousands of people whose lives, as they told me their stories, have been dramatically changed by this, by Christ, but also his word. It's made the difference in their life. They've been transformed. This past week, one of the books I am reading on my Kindle is a book about C.S. Lewis. Sorry, it's not in Kindle. I'm reading that one in hardback. But it's a book about C.S. Lewis's writing style. It's not a Christian book. And I just this week got to the chapter where the author of this book said, he changed. That he put it, he became a Christian when he, he was an atheist. At 29, he became a Christian. And then she said his writing, it changed dramatically. You know, she was kind of astounded by it. What, what was the change in one word? It, it would be the word humility. See, Lewis was just so proud of his intellect and everything, but after he found Christ, something changed. He had a certain humility about him, a certain the way of viewing things. It had completely changed his life. And it confirmed the truth of the gospel. Now, these first witnesses of Christ, disciples are the best case for this because they were cowards on the night Jesus was arrested. One of them got, tried to escape so fast, he lost his garment. You know, someone grabbed him, he took off, as John Mark, he took off running, naked. That's how scared he was. Jesus is in the tomb, these guys are up in an upper room hiding for days. And then they hear Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't even believe it. But you get to the book of Acts and you find out that they have changed so dramatically that 10 of them ended up dying as martyrs for their faith. 10 of them died because of the message in the New Testament that that it's the word of God. Not one of them backed down, not a single one. 
You know, people do die sometimes for a lie. They think something's true and they, they get martyred for it or whatever, but it's a lie. But people never die for something they know is a lie. These guys all had on their lips, he's alive, we've seen him, he was the son of God, savior of the world, put your trust in him. None of them would recant, not a single one of them, or there would be no Christianity. And he's come to change our lives as well. So earlier I mentioned in Sunday school we used to sing the song, Jesus Loves Me This, I know for the Bible tells me so. Another song we used to sing was the B-I-B-L-E. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone in the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. I wanna encourage you to do, apply this to our lives in a couple of different ways, depending on where you are with the subject. One is I encourage you to read your Bible. If you've never read it before, start with the Gospel of John and, and then move forward, I think, John and the Acts as a starting point. If you come to something you don't want to read, the way I read my Bible, by the way, is when I read a chapter, I put a check mark by it. Then if I come to a place where I think I don't want this today or whatever, I might skip ahead and then I'll put the check mark wherever I was, but eventually I come back and I say, oh, this is where I last time, so I keep track. But I encourage you to start reading your Bible, but don't get um, caught up on the sections that you think I don't understand this. That's all I'm saying, just keep reading your Bible. Second. There are a lot of books out there by people like Lee Strobel who make a strong case for, the, for our faith. And I encourage you to, if you have a lot of doubts or questions about this, read his books. Lee Strobel was a journalist for the Chicago Trib Tribune. He was also an atheist. His wife became a Christian. He got so upset. He was so mad about it. He set out to prove it was all false. And he found Christ in the process. It changed his life dramatically. But he's written probably 15 books related to faith that we can have. Third, I want to encourage you to live in the truth that's found in the pages of the Bible. Get your values from there, get your morals from there, get your beliefs from there. God's ways are the best ways. Four, and maybe the most important, get to know the God of the Bible. That's why I read my Bible, frankly. It's not to put a check mark or whatever. I'm reading my, my Bible with the question, what, is, what do I learn about God from this? What is my God really like? And then finally, if you're a Christian here today, I want to encourage you, if you were in the habit before of having a, a daily time with God, that you go back to that. Start spending time daily in God's Word, because I do think it will change your life. We're going to wrap up our service here today with a, a tag again of a song that was sung earlier called Firm Foundation. In the song, the firm foundation is Jesus. He's the rock upon which we stand. But there's a reference in the song about what Jesus taught. He said, anyone who hears my words and does it is like a person who builds a house on solid rock. And when the storm comes, it doesn't get blown over. But the person who doesn't do my word and doesn't apply it to their lives, it's like someone who builds on the sand. Storm's gonna come and the house is gonna wash away. And our God's word, I think, can become that firm foundation for us as well. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.